Well, if you would turn with me this evening to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 4. First Thessalonians, chapter 4, page 1189, if you're using the Pew Bible. First Thessalonians, chapter 4, <coughs> and we'll read from verse 13 uh, to the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm sure that we're all aware of the parables of Jesus. Uh, we've heard them often. We've encountered them many times and they're very familiar to us. Uh, but not more so than the parable of the sheep and the goats, which Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25. Because in that parable, Jesus explains what will happen at the second coming. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all nations. And he will separate, uh, one, separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place, as Jesus says. He will place the sheep on his right hand. And the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right. Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And the king will then say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these, says Jesus, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. But what I never realised is that the parable of the sheep and the goats, it isn't actually a parable. Because a parable is simply an illustrative story with a deeper meaning. But when Jesus warned about his second coming, it wasn't an illustration with a deeper meaning or this imaginary event. It, no, it was a promised reality. It was a promised reality. And so my friend, the second coming of Jesus Christ to judge the world and separate those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ, it's a promised reality. And it will take place whether we are alive to see it or not. Jesus Christ 
will return. Jesus Christ will return. And these are the very words which the Apostle Paul is affirming to the Thessalonians. Because as we mentioned last Lord's Day, Paul is writing his first letter to the Thessalonians in order to remind them of the hope which they have as Christians. And that they should take comfort in the fact that they have hope in death and they have hope at the resurrection. Because for the Christian, death is not the end. For death after life is only a doorway into life after death. And as we saw last week, Paul describes the darkness and the pain of death. He describes it to the Thessalonians in such a beautiful way. Because he says that those who have died, they have fallen asleep in Jesus. They have fallen asleep in Jesus. But in these closing verses in chapter 4, Paul not only speaks about the hope of the Christian at death... He also speaks about the hope of the Christian at the resurrection. And he does so in order to comfort the Thessalonians. Which is what he says in the last verse, in verse 18. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. And the hope of the Christian at death and the hope at the resurrection, it ought to be a comfort to us as Christians. And this is what the Catechism is describing to us in questions 37 and 38. Question 37, which we were looking at last week, it highlights the hope of the Christian at death. And when we looked at that question from the perspective of verses 13 13 and 14, uh, we noted in those words that we see the reality of death, the result of death, the rest in death, and the resurrection after death. But now as we come to question 38 in the Catechism, Uh, We can see that from the following verses, from verse 15 onwards, we can see that Paul is highlighting for us the hope of the Christian at the resurrection. And Paul does so by drawing our attention to four elements of the resurrection. The return of Christ, rising in Christ, righteous before Christ, and rejoicing with Christ. Return of Christ, rising in Christ, righteous before Christ, and rejoicing with Christ. That's what I'd like us to look at this evening. So first of all, uh, the return, or return of Christ. Return of Christ. Look again at verse 15. Paul says, this is what we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we, we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. As we mentioned last week, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he was writing to a very young church. And this young church was in the heart of an industrial and a commercial city, and it had only been established for a few years. Therefore, the Thessalonians were not only a young church, but they were also a young church with young Christians. And as young Christians, they needed to grow in their faith and in their understanding of the Scriptures. But the reason Paul wrote to them was because of a misunderstanding 
that they had about the second coming of Christ. Because they thought that Jesus Christ would return immediately or fairly soon after his ascension into heaven. But as the years went by, nothing changed. Jesus hadn't returned and the second coming hadn't taken place. But what had changed was that some people in the church in Thessalonica, they had died probably because of of persecution. And this caused the Thessalonians upset and confusion. But they weren't upset and confused because their loved ones had passed away. They were upset and confused because they thought that Jesus Christ would return before anyone in the church would die. And they were questioning why their church members had died before Jesus returned. And what would happen to them when Jesus does return. Because they were worried about those who had died. They were worried that uh, they wouldn't be saved. But when Paul highlights this misunderstanding, he wants to comfort the Thessalonians. By teaching them that even though Jesus Christ hasn't returned, death is not the end of the story. Because Paul says... We're not like unbelievers. The Christian is not like an unbeliever who sorrows without hope. Because we have hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ. We have the greatest hope, he says, in life and in death. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that he will bring to glory all who fall asleep in Jesus. That's our hope, says Paul. That's Where our hope lies. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. We have the death of death. Where death is defeated. And the grave is conquered. And the victory is won. And that's what Paul was reminding us in 1 Corinthians 15. He was reminding the Corinthians then. That the hope of the Christian. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb is the hope of the Christian. Because he says, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul went on to say, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, it's in vain. And our faith, he says, it's in vain. And we are to be found misrepresenting God. We're preaching lies. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. It's empty. And you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He says have perished. And that was the great worry for the Thessalonians. That those who had fallen asleep in Jesus. Had perished. But Paul reminded the Thessalonians. That God will bring with him. Those who sleep in Jesus. But what caused the Thessalonians to question. And even to doubt the second coming. Was the delay. And that's what causes many people. Today to question. And to doubt. Whether or not the second coming of Christ. Will take place. 
Because the delay between uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and now, nearly 2,000 years later, and inevitably such a, a long wait, it causes people, many people, not only to question when it will happen, but also if it will ever happen. But if scripture has said that it will happen, then it will happen. Because if scripture affirms to us that God made the world, that Jesus was born of a virgin, and that Jesus rose again on the third day, then we must believe that Jesus will come a second time to judge the world. But the delay in the return of Jesus Christ It does cause a lot of doubt and even disbelief about the whole thing. Which is why the Thessalonians were concerned for those in their families who had fallen asleep in Jesus. And yet Paul affirms to them, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But I want to suggest to you that that delay between the death of a Christian... And the resurrection at the last day. That delay is almost immediate. The time frame between the death of a person to their resurrection is like falling asleep and waking up again. Because when we think about what sleep is, on average we sleep for about eight hours a night if we're very lucky. But when we sleep, uh, the time between falling asleep and waking up, it's almost immediate. We don't feel the time long. And I believe that that's what it's, it's like when we sleep the sleep of death. The time frame between the death of a person to their resurrection at the last day is almost instantaneous. It's like falling asleep and waking up again. <coughs> But for those who haven't yet fallen asleep, that's us, the time seems long. The wait seems like it's taking forever. Just like it is when you can't sleep at night. You see every hour of the clock. And it's a long night. But at death, we belong to the time frame of eternity. Where there is no time. And the time frame between death and the resurrection after death, it's immediate. And this is why the Bible emphasizes the suddenness of the return of Jesus Christ. Because he will return from a realm without time. He will return from eternity. And the time frame from the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to heaven, that time frame between the resurrection to the day of judgment, it's almost immediate. But when Jesus does return, Time will cease. All time will come to an end. The clock will stop. Time will be no more. But for us who live within the boundaries and government of time, the return of Jesus will come at an hour when we least expect. And Paul reminds the Thessalonians of this fact. Because he says in the following chapter, into chapter 5, He goes on to say, just read it with me at at verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon, upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're all, you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. We're to watch, he says, and be ready because the return of Jesus Christ will be like a thief in the night. It will be completely unexpected. And Paul's warning, it's the same warning as what Jesus gave us. You'll remember that Jesus issued uh, the warning that as in the days of Noah, so will it be for the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they were unaware that the flood, until the flood came and they were swept away. And Jesus says, so will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what hour of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And he would have not had his house broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the son of man is coming at an hour when you think not. And even the last words of our Bible. The last words. The last thing Jesus wants to say to us. It ought to stress to us the suddenness of Christ's coming. But also the urgency which we must have. Uh, with the gospel and our desire as a church and as a congregation to reach people who are still lost in their sins because Jesus says in Revelation 22 he who testifies to these things says surely I am coming quickly Amen come Lord Jesus and you know that was the way in which Andrew Bonar lived his life he had an urgency with the gospel. The Scottish minister of the 19th century. He's reported to have said every morning he went to open his curtains. Is it today Lord? And when he would close his curtains again at night. He would say. Will it be tonight Lord? And that's the way we ought to live our lives. We should live our lives in light of the second coming. And we should ask ourselves. Would I like Christ to find me here doing this or in this spiritual condition if he were to return today? My friend, we need to be ready and we need to prepare for the return of Christ. Because when he returns, there will be many who rise in Christ. And you have to ensure that you're one of them. That you will rise in Christ. Which brings us to consider secondly. Rising in Christ. We've looked at the return of Christ. But secondly. Rising in Christ. He says in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. With a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel. With the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ. Will rise first. Paul moves on to this verse uh, to explain what will happen when Jesus Christ returns. 
And he says that when the Lord descends from heaven, it will not be an act of humiliation uh, like it was with the incarnation uh, and the birth of Jesus. He will descend from his throne in heaven as the Lord of hosts and the King of kings. And he will come in his glory with all the holy angels with him. And Paul tells us that there will be three unique sounds which will be heard by everyone. Paul says that Jesus will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now the trumpet was a familiar feature for the Jews because trumpets were either used to declare war or to announce the arrival of a king or to gather people together for a journey. And it seems that all of these Uh, thoughts are emphasized here in the return of Christ because the sound of a trumpet it will announce the final war of the destruction of sin Satan and death but the sound of the trumpet will also declare that King Jesus has come and that he's come to gather all his people together to take them home to be with himself But Paul's mention of the voice of an archangel, what he says there, it's unclear. Michael is the only archangel mentioned in the Bible. But it's unclear what his role will be. We'll just have to wait to find that one out. But what's noteworthy, and to some extent extent so uh, beautiful, is the fact that when the Lord of glory descends from heaven... He will descend with a cry of command where those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be called out of their sleep. They will be called from their beds and awoken from their sleep. And you know, when I think about the second coming, I always imagine or I always think about uh, Jairus' daughter. You remember Jairus' daughter? Jairus was the synagogue ruler who went to Jesus because his daughter was dying. She was sick and at the point of death. But by the time Jesus reached Jairus' house, everyone was coming out, weeping and wailing and crying and saying that she's dead. There's no point. And you remember what Jesus said about Jairus' daughter? He said, the child is not dead, but only sleeping. And Jesus went in to where the child was and he took her by her hand and he said to her, Talitha Chumi, which means little girl, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. And I believe that that's what it would be like for the Christian who has fallen asleep in Jesus. Jesus will stand over our grave and he will say, It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's a beautiful thought. But you know, I also think there's an element of what happened with Lazarus that will also happen at the last day. Because when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he stood over his grave, or in front of his grave, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And it's interesting, the power that Jesus has over death is that if he had just said, come forth, all the graves would have opened. 
But Jesus was specific. And Jesus called him by name. Lazarus, come forth. And I believe that that's how the dead in Christ will be raised first. Because Jesus will call all who are his to come forth. And he will call them all individually by name. And say, it's time to get up. But we also have to note the language which Paul is using here uh, to encourage the Thessalonians. Because Paul says that at death, the Christian will fall asleep in Jesus. And it's a a beautiful image of the death of a Christian, which they just fall asleep leaning, leaning upon the bosom of Jesus. They fall asleep in Jesus. But at the resurrection on the last day, Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. And so Paul says that the great hope for the Christian is that they not only fall asleep in Jesus, but they also rise from their sleep in Christ. And of course the key word for Paul is the word in. The word in. Because for Paul everything the Christian is and everything the Christian has and everything the Christian does, it's all because they are in Christ. They are in him. They are united to him. They are in union with him. In which they are inseparably united to Jesus Christ. Both in death and in life. And this is the beauty of what Paul is saying. That even death. The great separator. The great divider. The great enemy. The last enemy. It has no power to separate the Christian from their saviour. And even at the resurrection, the Christian cannot be separated from Jesus Christ. Cannot. It is impossible. But as we mentioned last week, the point of death, uh, there is of course the separation of the soul and the body. Where the soul is made perfect in holiness, immediately passes into glory. And the body is laid to rest in the grave until the resurrection. But what I think is so wonderful is that even though the remains are laid to rest in the dust of the earth, those remains belong to Jesus. They're owned by Jesus because they've been bought by Jesus. And when when a Christian dies, it's not only their soul that's in union with Christ, their body is in union with him too. Which means that when Jesus accomplished our redemption by his precious blood, He not only redeemed our soul from hell. He also redeemed our our body from the corruption and the destruction of the grave. And this is why the Christian will, will receive a new body at the resurrection. They will receive a glorious body, he says. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. Our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. But what will that glorious resurrection body look like? As one commentator put it, the resurrection is not reconstruction. The resurrection is not reconstruction. It's not a reconstruction of the body of sin and decay and disability and death. It's a completely new body. 
And this is also what we were reading about in 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul is trying to describe to the Corinthians what a resurrected body will look like. And all he could say was that it will look and feel nothing like the one you now have. And Paul used the best earthly illustration he could think of. Because he says about the seed. The seed, what you, he says about the seed, what you put into the ground is not what comes out of the ground. What you sow is not what you reap. And Paul is saying that that's the same when the Christian dies. Because what is sown is perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. The body is sown, he says, in dishonour. But it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. And what Paul is saying is that the body which goes into the ground is not the body that will come out of it. Because the body with all its sin and ailments and disabilities and pain and decay, it will be raised in Christ like Christ. Perfect in holiness. It will be raised up in glory. The seed which was sown in the ground. It will be raised like a beautiful flower. But as Paul concluded that chapter about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15. He said something important. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. But listen to what Paul says. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of sin is death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, this is the victory of salvation. That when the Christian is raised in Christ, they are righteous before Christ. And this is what I'd like us to consider thirdly. We've considered the return of Christ, the rising in Christ, but thirdly, righteous before Christ. Righteous before Christ. Look again at verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And what Paul draws our attention to here with these words is that at the resurrection, we will see death swallowed up in victory. And those who rise in Christ because of his victory over death, they will stand as righteous before Christ. Because on that 
glorious day when all the graves of the Lord's people are opened. The bodies which are still united to Christ and the souls which are still in union with Christ, they will be reunited. Reunited. Body and soul will be reunited. In which the whole person is reunited while still united to Jesus Christ. And that union, it will be completed when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the last day. And they will stand before their substitute. And they will not be condemned. But they will be openly acknowledged by Jesus to the Father. Because they will have an advocate with the Father. Someone who stands on their behalf. They will have Jesus Christ the righteous. And he will stand on behalf of the Christian and say, this is a child of God. This is one for whom I died. This is one whom I love. And because of the Christian's righteous standing with God, because of their justification, they will be acquitted and blameless for all their sin. Blameless. They will stand in Christ like Christ. Completely righteous in God's sight. My friend, if you're a Christian, there is no need to fear the day of judgment. Because if you're a Christian, if you love the Lord, if you love Jesus for all that he's done, and if you love following him, then you are as righteous, listen to this, you are as righteous before him today as you will be on the day of judgment. But, and there has to be a but, but if you are not a Christian, if you do not love the Lord, if you do not follow Jesus, if you don't want to follow Jesus, then you ought to fear the day of judgment. Because if the Christian already knows the outcome of the day of judgment, they are justified. If they know their outcome, then you must also know what your verdict will be too. I don't need to tell you what your verdict will be. Because the position you are in today as someone who is out of Christ is the position you will be in on the day of judgment. Unless, unless you do something about it. My friend, you already know your verdict on the day of judgment unless you close in with Christ and make him your Lord and Saviour. But if you will not bow the knee in this world, then you will bow it in the next. Because the promise of Scripture is that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and in hell. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last week we were considering some of the questions in the larger catechism in relation to what happens at death. Well, the larger catechism goes on to explain what happens at the day of judgment. Question 89 asks, 
What shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? And it says, I'll just read it to you. At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand. And upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, they shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. And thereupon shall be cast out from the favourable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ his saints and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments both of body and soul with the devil and his angels forever. But question 90 in the larger catechism asks what shall be done to the righteous on the day of judgment? And the larger catechism states at the day of judgment the righteous being caught up to Christ in the clouds, shall be set on his right hand, and there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in the judging of the reprobate angels and men, shall be received into heaven, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy, both in body and soul, in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And the Catechism says, and this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and the day of judgment. a wonderful statement and as we can see there are the contrasts are stark and looking at it I know which camp I want to be in but do you do you know which camp you want to be in and you know when the Apostle Paul spoke about the day of judgment he reminded them all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in the body whether good or evil. But when Paul spoke about the day of judgment he did so with fear and trembling because in the same breath he went on to say knowing the terror of the Lord we persuade men Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And my friend, that's why I tell you about the day of judgment. Not to scare you, not to manipulate you, but to emphasize that this message in the Bible is a serious message and one which must be taken seriously. Because it's being preached to you with love and a longing to see you saved. And to come out on the side of Christ. That's why it's preached to you. My friend, I want you to know Jesus Christ. And I want you to die knowing that when he returns at the last day, you will be rising in Christ. And you will be righteous before Christ. And you will be going in to rejoice with Christ. That's what I want you to die knowing. But will you die knowing that? That's the whole promise to us in the gospel. 
But it's up to you to respond to it. But what I'd like us to consider in conclusion is the rejoicing with Christ. We've looked at the return of Christ, rising in Christ, righteous before Christ. But rejoicing with Christ. Rejoicing with Christ. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Paul knew how to comfort the Thessalonians. Because he reminds them of the hope the Christian has at death. And the hope the Christian has at the resurrection. But when Paul says we shall always be with the Lord. He's emphasizing the security salvation promises to the believer. Because salvation is not only about being saved from sin. It's also about being saved to the Savior. And this is what Jesus promised. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. My friend, that's the hope of the Christian. That this Jesus who began a good work in you will bring it all on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it will be completed when the Christian is glorified in heaven. And as we've seen over the past couple of months, we've been uh, looking at all these questions in the catechism. And seeing the application of the work of Christ in the heart of the believer. And we've seen how it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Where it began at the very beginning with our regeneration. By making us alive again. And our union with Christ, uniting us to Jesus in our effectual calling. And all the benefits that we receive from it are that we are declared righteous in God's sight. We're justified. We're declared a son or a daughter of our Heavenly Father. We're adopted. We're changed into the likeness of Jesus. We're being sanctified. But we are promised every spiritual blessing in heavenly places where we can say with Full confidence and assurance. God loves me. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. The Lord is good to me. My Savior is keeping me. And as Christians, our Savior is keeping us until that work is complete and we stand before Him in glory. And when we stand before Him, with body and soul reunited, we have the promise That after everything we've gone through in this life. And all that we've seen. And all that we may have experienced. And all the pains. And all the sorrows. And all the heartaches. That this world brought into our experience. We have the promise. That God will wipe away. Every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death. Neither sorrow. Nor crying. There will be no more pain. And all the former things will have passed away. And as a glorified people who have been gathered from all the nations and peoples and tribes and languages will stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes crying with a loud voice, salvation 
belongs to our God and to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we will fall on our faces before the throne singing that new song to the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. My friend, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Because at the return of Christ, the Christian will be rising in Christ, righteous before Christ, and rejoicing with Christ. And you know, this ought to give to us the greatest comfort like it did for the Thessalonians. Because when we consider the glory to come, we are given a proper perspective on things. That our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look to the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, as Paul says, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And you know, this is why the young Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, he died at 29. That's why he could write, When this passing world is done, When has he sunk yon glaring sun, When we stand with Christ in glory, Looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And you know, he went on to say, when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. The best is yet to come. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of salvation, that it alone belongs to thee. And Lord, we give thanks that thou, in thy grace and thy mercy, O that thou wouldest draw sinners such as we are to thyself, that we would be those who are changed in the twinkling of an eye to look like thy beloved Son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to have a mind towards the things of eternity. Help us to prepare ourselves for that city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Help us, Lord, to be found in Christ and to rise in Christ to be righteous before him and to rejoice with him that we would all be found there that when we stand in glory and when we see his face that we would also all see one another we would see one another and say that it is good for us to be here all go before us we pray keep us on the narrow path that leads to life 
Do us good for Jesus' sake. Amen. <coughs> I shall conclude by singing in Psalm 149. Psalm 149, page 450 in the blue book. Psalm 149, <clears throat> singing from the beginning down to the verse marked 5. Praise ye the Lord unto him sing, a new song and his praise. In the assembly of his saints in sweet psalms do ye raise. Let Israel in his maker joy, and to him praises sing. Let all that Zion's children are be joyful in their king. Down to the verse marked 5 of Psalm 149. To God's praise. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.